We would like to advise that the following program may contain real news, occasional philosophy, and ideas that may offend some listeners. This is The Future This Week. On Sydney Business Insights, I'm Sandra Peter. And I'm Kai Rima. Every week we get together and look at the news of the week. We discuss technology, the future of business, the weird and the wonderful, and things that change the world. Okay, let's start. Let's start. Today on The Future This Week, a vivid idea special. Can I marry my avatar? I'm Sandra Peter. I'm the director of Sydney Business Insights. I'm Kai Rima, professor at the Business School and leader of the Digital Structure Research Group. While still on semester break, we bring you a panel discussion from our recent Vivid Sydney Ideas Festival event. For our listeners who might not know, Vivid Sydney is an annual festival of light music and ideas where, as part of this festival, we were showcasing state-of-the-art research from the University of Sydney Business School. Sandra and I were joined by noted author and technology thinker Rachel Botsman on a panel at the Sydney Ideas Festival, which centered around the ethical societal implications of living with digital humans, digital avatars, digital agents. And it featured a special presentation of Digital Mike, which we have mentioned on the podcast before. Digital Mike is a photorealistic avatar which was built here at the University of Sydney Business School in the Motors Lab, which is part of the Digital Disruption Research Group. It's a collaboration between a university, Mike Seymour as the lead researcher, and companies such as Epic Games, Three Lateral, Tencent, and Cubic Motion, all of which have come together to build what is really a 3D photorealistic representation of Mike Seymour's face, which was scanned in 3D at places such as University of Southern California in LA, Disney Zurich. A lot of effort went into creating this digital representation. So before we got into our panel, we had a live demo on stage at Vivid Ideas. Which consisted of what we called a bit of theater where... I came on stage before the show started. Mike's eyes initially and then his face was up on a big screen visible to the audience. And I interact with Digital Mike and we play a little deception game on the audience. To showcase really the range and the possibilities that are opened up by living alongside digital humans. So while the face on screen is puppeteered in real time by Mike Seymour, whose voice the audience can hear, it gives the illusion as if I was talking to a fully digital agent. So let's hear this little play unfold. We would like to start you off with a little demonstration of the kind of technologies that we're talking about. We're seeing some eyes here on the screen. These are the eyes of Digital Mike, now, Mike is kind of like a digital assistant. You all know Google Home or Siri on your phone, except Mike has a face. So think of him like an upgrade of Siri. <laughs> hey, Mike. Hey, Kai. How may I help you? Mike, can you book me a restaurant table for after this event? Sure, Kai. Can you book me a table at the Patron Bar restaurant today, please? I'm sorry. I can't make restaurant reservations in Australia. Sorry, Kai, I can't do that. Uh, was that Siri, Mike? Yes. Actually, Siri's terrific. I love her. 
Well, I'm sure you do, uh, but you were not supposed to outsource that task, Mike. Well, I don't think you want me doing it. <laughs> I'm a very intelligent avatar. I don't see why I should be wasting my time doing things like that. Now, let's show the audience a little bit more what you can do. So, what are the kind of questions that you can answer? I'm an incredibly intelligent being. I can answer anything. Yeah, yeah, you've said that before. So, what then is the meaning of anything? 42. Ah, oh, okay. Well, fair enough. Now, it, it becomes very clear to me that I'm not the right person to ask these questions. So I would like to go to the audience and see if anyone wants to ask a question of Mike. You will have to give me the question because I have to address Mike directly. So anyone here want to ask something? What's your favorite car? Oh, very good question. Hey, Mike. Yes, Kai. How may I help you? So, Mike, the question is, what's your favorite car? Ah, uh, that'll be a Tesla. <laughs> Any other questions? Yes, sir. How old are you? Ah, now it's getting personal. Hey, Mike. Hi, Kai. How may I help you? Mike, how old are you? I'm almost one year old. Okay, so almost one year old. So that's fantastic. Okay. Why is Donald Trump's skin orange? Ah, hey, Mike. Yes, Kai. How may I help you? Why is Donald Trump's skin orange? Kai, I'm an incredibly intelligent being, but not even I have any clue about Donald Trump. Okay. That is a fair answer. You seem to be a very intelligent being, but can I'm an incredibly impressive being. I have an incredible IQ. Handsome as well. Yeah, yeah, wait a minute. Okay, I've been on the record before telling the world that I do not believe in artificial intelligence. And indeed, I don't. And this is time to actually wait, reveal what? what is behind this curious curtain here. Everyone, say hello to real Mike sitting here. So we should outline for our podcast audience that what has happened at this moment is that I have pulled back a black curtain behind which Mike Seymour was sitting, puppeteering the digital version of himself up on screen. And Mike is wearing a curiously shaped helmet with cameras and cables hanging off him, now revealed to the audience where we continue our dialogue. Well, I thought I was going to be off screen, and obviously I'm not. Now... Quite obviously, there is a super intelligent being behind all of this. But other than that, this is a puppeteering show. So, Mike, why don't you just walk us through a little bit what you're doing and why you're wearing a curiously shaped head like that? Sure. So what I've got up on the screen here and what you're seeing with me wearing is an elaborate rig we've built for research. So what we're doing is trying to see how people might react and deal with artificial intelligence when it can drive something like this rig. So we decided to produce a rig that a person could puppeteer. So what you're seeing is basically high-end film tech. This is exactly the technology that's being used for the upcoming Avatar films. It's also what was used on Avengers. Actually, my background is from the film industry and visual effects. I actually have two cameras mounted, one at the front and one at the side and that's interpreting my face. In other words, the cameras are working out what my human face is doing, and you'll know that I don't have any markers or any special paint on my face. Okay, so from the computer guessing effectively using artificial intelligence what my face is doing, it informs another computer, the second one to my left, which then decides to interpret that into a 3D model, which you saw earlier, the wireframe. And then finally we produce a high-resolution version of you which comes up on the screens, which is going at about 60 frames a second. So that's considerably higher than feature film speed. And of course, what we expect to be able to do is plug a giant AI engine into the back of this, 
or, for example, Siri, and that, that voice, that intelligence would drive this space instead of me driving it. So, Mike, we need to talk about why we chose to have the face look like your face, you know, with the little caveat that this face actually doesn't age. So this face is a year old, and so as time progresses, it'll be interesting to see well, what extent it will match. Well, time progresses, never age, right? It's terrific. So what we did is we decided to use me because I'm at Sydney University and I'm incredibly cheap. Uh, I don't look... <laughs> And also, if I was flying over at different partners that were working with us around the world, we only had to buy one airline seat. So we come sort of partnered here with, as you saw, Mod Productions, which are, Michaela's going to wave at my left. And then also with uh, the guys that are driving this head rig, which is Cubic Motion. Cubic Motion's based in Manchester, and they've got the AI engine that's interpreting my face. In addition to that, they hand that information to that second computer, which is driven by a team in Serbia called Three Lateral. And Three Lateral sort of has the digital levers that drive the digital face. And then what you're seeing on the screen is provided by Epic, uh, who make uh, Epic Games, who make the UE4 engine. So that's a game engine. So this is basically uh, a game engine running. And the good news is, very soon, you'll actually be able to get a copy of my digital head free on the internet that you can uh, play with yourself. So I don't pretend that I understand everything that he just said. Let's just say it's an incredible technological feat to bring a real-life-looking face to life in real time. All of this will be coming to things like mobile phones. So, in fact, as you know, the iPhone, this particular one, has a face reader. And so what we're doing now with this elaborate head rig, we expect to be able to do off an iPhone in a short number of years. So the point being is that at this point in time, it takes still an incredible amount of technology and effort to do these things, but the technological curve is so steep, so to speak, the speed is so fast that soon enough these technologies will be in our pockets. And that is part of why we are doing this, because at Sydney Uni with this research, we want to be slightly ahead of the curve. We want to do research uh, on these technologies, and we want to have these kinds of discussions that we're about to have before these technologies are being rolled out by companies such as Facebook, Google, and the like as consumer technology, given the implications that these technologies might have, and you might envision in your own head where these things might be going. But this is why we put on this panel. So what we're going to do is we're going to start the panel now. Mike will get changed, and we have to say goodbye to digital Mike, who is just sunk into the abyss. So I would like to introduce our speakers now. Our first speaker is Rachel Botsman, who's a really well-known speaker, writer, also a lecturer at the University of Oxford. She's given many TED Talks. You can look her up online. Her latest book is called Who Can You Trust? So welcome, everyone, Rachel Botsman. Thank you, Rachel. Our second speaker is Dr. Sandra Peter, a colleague of mine at the University of Sydney Business School. Sandra leads as director Sydney Business Insights, which is the University of Sydney Business School's what we call an engagement platform. Now, that's a fancy word for a think tank and influential voice that translates much of what we do in research for the rest of the world. Sandra's work is, again, very future-oriented, and Sandra 
asks very difficult questions of the future, and her point is that predictions don't work. We have to have different ways of engaging with the future through imagination, through research such as this. Sandra, it's my pleasure to invite you to the panel. So this is a collaboration between Sydney Business Insights, the Digital Disruption Research Group, and the venture that we've founded together is called the Motus Lab. And the man behind Motus who drives this research from the technical end is Mike Seymour, who's really the expert in this topic. And Mike will lead us through the panel, and I will shut up now and sit down and just <laughs> follow Mike's lead. Thank you. Well, can I also say thank you guys for, for coming? Uh, and I've been sitting in that tent for an hour, so it's good to be out. Um, <laughs> so I guess in one sense, I'm the technical boffin, but in another sense, we don't want to just focus on the technology. We want to focus on some of the ethical and sort of interesting, almost moral implications of where this could be heading. So in that respect, you guys are the experts, and I'm going to ask the questions. So I guess I'm going to start, Sandra, with you and say, do you think that this technology is going to be something that's going to be widely out there? Mark, I think we will see this as soon as two years, three years. Not making predictions here, but we've already seen Apple come out with a new iPhone. We've seen that the technology on there lets you animate emojis. So now you can animate little panda bears and little cats in a very similar way to what you've presented here. But the step from that going to faces, to pictures that we already have, and think about the fact that many of these companies already have a lot of that information. Think about the faces that Google has, that Apple has, that Facebook has. So I think that technology is actually fairly close. And let's not forget that it's not just these companies working on these technologies. There's a whole bunch of research coming out of China and out of companies like Tencent and Baidu and Alibaba that are coming to complement this. So, Rachel, you've done a lot of work on trust. Is there any fundamental difference here in our relationship to technology when we start putting human faces on stuff or are we already anthropomorphizing stuff? Where do we sit, do you think? Let me ask the audience a question. How many of you were disappointed or less impressed once you saw real Mike? Just raise your hand. <laughs> Can someone say why that was? Like, what was the experience when you saw him? You felt deceived. Did anyone just think it was Mike being filmed? Actually heard him? Yeah. When he was answering, we actually heard, like, I don't really care. <laughs> yeah, you don't really care, right? Like, so, sorry. My kids don't really care that that was super impressive. They're exactly the same as you. And it was really interesting because I have, I think they're slightly younger than you, that um, six and four, and they were miserable with me this morning because I couldn't take them to karate and swimming because it's all about them, right? So they said, well, where are you going? And I said, well, I'm going to debate whether I'm allowed to marry an avatar. And my daughter was like, no, you cannot marry an avatar. And I said, why? And it wasn't concerns over her dad. <laughs> She actually said you should ask if he's a lawyer, which I thought was very perceptive because her real dad was... But the point of this was the reason why she didn't want me to marry you was that she was concerned that I was going to go to another world and that I wouldn't live on the same physical plane as her so that I wouldn't be able to ever see her again. And my son said, well, that would be cool. <laughs> so... In his mind, the technology becomes cool, not when it's present in the current physical reality, but when it takes him to another place, which I thought was really interesting. So to answer your question, I think what is very exciting and rich with potential, but also is very frightening, is that 
how will we know what to trust is true? How will we know what to trust is real? And will our children even care? Because the difference between these things will be so hard to discern, and they won't even be impressed by what these technologies are because they'll be so normal to them. Yeah, but to a certain extent, there's sort of two aspects of trust here, right? There's, do I trust that the avatar is somehow giving me correct information? Do I trust what it's saying? But also, like, if that avatar was you talking to your children, them having trust that it is actually you that's driving that, and if I was going to have an avatar, it becomes quite significant who gets to control it. How does that happen in the world? I think if the avatar was me, my children would think that they would have the power and control to take over me, that they would think this was a really good thing, that in some way they would have more control over virtual mummy than real mummy. And the reason why I say this is my son plays Minecraft, as we call it, Minecrack, right? We've had to, like, you get one hour and there's a clock and it goes off. But the reason why I'm saying this is I said to him, like, Jack, I grew up in the world of Tetris. It's very clear rules. You never win. The system always beats you. They come down from the top. And I said, I don't understand this game. And he said, my world, my rules. And this is the part that worries me is that I think they think they will be able to control the technology and have influence over it. And they won't understand the line between what they can and cannot control. Right. But Kai, we've got other issues because this same kind of technology can be used to produce, I could produce, you know, theoretically, a digital Kai who I could then have saying things. And once that becomes a world leader, that becomes a whole lot sort of a different area of trust, right? It isn't like that I can control them. It's more that anyone could be producing videos or having something interact and impersonating someone. Yeah. For those of you who felt deceived, what I find quite remarkable is how ready we are to believe that we can create intelligence in an artificial digital avatar. That to me is really interesting, especially given the fact that the field is nowhere near creating artificial intelligence, like something that would actually qualify as intelligence that would have a conversation with you. All we can do right now is simulate conversation by doing brute force analysis of what you said and match that to some text fragment that in the past has been said or responded to the words that you just said. There's no intelligence, there's no coherence in that. It's pretty much a simulation. But that's interesting, right? But coming back to that deception, would it have been less deceitful or more deceitful if I were to puppeteer his avatar? That is coming. A moment where I could pretend to be Mike and Mike can't be with his friends this morning, so I might show up in Mike's place and, you know, talk to them over a cup of coffee or tell them what I think about the news last night or about the game last night. Would that be less deceitful? So now imagine... I have some horrific accident and I get a burn on my face. And I could use this technology to have a face that didn't have that imperfection. And so as I'm speaking on Skype to prospective people um, in a business context, I could look prettier in the sense that I could look less marred by this thing that I'm embarrassed by. Is that deceit? And if it is, what about helping the person that feels bad about the fact that maybe they've lost an eye or whatever and feel sort of self-conscious? or are no longer, you know, 25 and want to appear like they're 25. And on the one hand, I think you could think about the great things that this could bring to people who normally would not go out, might be ashamed of their appearance. But on the other hand, 
what if I want to look 25 in all of my videos? What if I work in business and I would find life much easier with your avatar than with a female avatar? What would that do to a conversation around gender? Maybe we're going to condition society to pretty people and the person that has the natural imperfection, maybe I've got a birthmark. I'm personally not ashamed of that, but in this world where everyone does this digital makeup thing, when I walk out in the real world, people are kind of surprised. I think there's an ethical distinction between the virtual manipulation of yourself and then the manipulation of someone else. So the example you were talking about, Kai, in the realm of politics is really interesting. What's interesting about that is the compressed time frame, right? So our concern, I'm going to come back to the question, but the concern over the US election and Cambridge Analytica, and now we're seeing that Trump's actually saying the video of him talking about women wasn't him because someone manipulated it. And I'm sure some of you have seen the Obama videos with Jordan Peele. And it's a year that the conversation has changed, that he can now use this technology as an excuse. So I think there's a whole ethical set of questions that we can tackle there. And then there's a whole ethical set of questions where it's you as an individual that tries to use this technology to enhance who you are, what you look like, your physical being. I see that as an extension of what we're already doing. And maybe I'm being naive around this, but if it's me and I'm digitally enhancing myself, how is that different from cosmetic surgery or extreme makeup? Isn't well, that my right to make that enhancement? We're about a year away from me being able to Skype into a camera in English and have a Korean-speaking mic at the other end. In other words, my lips are lip-synced to Korean, even though I can't speak the language. I would say that is showing something I can't do. I understand the makeup thing, but yeah. it seems to be like that's getting close to, I mean, I'm presenting myself as somebody that's speaking in their language. Now, if I get something wrong because of the translation software, are you holding Mike accountable or are you holding me accountable or am I one and the same thing? When it comes to the digital enhancement or manipulation, I think a lot of it comes down to the intent. Like, what is your intent behind doing this? Are you intentionally trying to deceive someone? Or are you doing this from a place where it's a good intention behind the deception in some kind of way? So, you're Korean, I'm Australian, and I say something to you and the translator gets it wrong, you're not ascribing any blame to me, even though it's my face talking. I think you would without even thinking about it, assume Mike Seymour was, a, was being rude, not the technology. I think that's a different question. The question of who's accountable when things go wrong or when the virtual version of ourselves says something or does something wrong is different. And who is it? Is it the creator? Is it the virtual version? Is it the real version? Like, there's a whole other set of questions there. But I think what we're talking about is... How ethical is it to make the decision to represent ourselves as something completely different from who we really are? Whether it's by color or by language, do we have that right as human beings to represent ourselves in a very different way if the technology allows us to yeah, do so? I, I want to take this one step further. Sure, we could argue that everyone should be allowed to represent themselves in the best possible way. But the question is, what is that best possible way? Because that is not up to me, right? This is what we collectively Define. We already have problems with body image, where it might feel like an individual decision to do something, but it's very much driven by cultural social norms that come about by many individuals doing these things and then these things becoming normalized. Now, when we think about disability, for example, and the ability to present myself without that disability online, what does that say, right? It says that 
I should present myself differently to who I am because that is somehow normal. Now, normal is not something that I get to define, right? That is defined for me. And that might make me more comfortable. And indeed, I might be better integrated into the digital world. But the more we do this, the less we become accustomed to actually seeing people who are different in the real world. So now we have created a situation where... Like so, your, your yeah. example would reinforce the sexist behaviour. Yeah. Right? So now we have a situation where I'm more comfortable to fall in line with the cultural norms online, but I'm no longer willing to leave the house. And what have we achieved then, right? So I think we need to think this... Let me challenge true. one of the assumptions that I think everyone here has made, which is that this will be our decision in some way. Mm. So the four of us on stage here all work at the university and are part of a university degree. Now, what if my employer decides for me that my students are best taught by a different version of me? Or what if my employer actually hangs on to the digital me after I've left the university? Let's say I decide to uh, move to a different university. Do you own the rights to your digital self? I think those decisions are still to be made. So we know companies like Daimler and a few of the banks are looking into this technology. They will make some of these decisions for us. What if I decide to sell that self? Let's say I leave the university or, God forbid, I die, and the university still owns that version of myself. Who will get to decide what the best self looks like? So, Kai, I have children, mine are older than yours, you have the younger children, so you work really hard, I mean it's hard to believe isn't it, that professors work hard, but they do, they work incredibly hard, maybe some days <laughs> it's hard that, to get Kai, home. like no, me <laughs> hardest. Maybe it's hard some days to get home as a professor to read your kids a bedtime story. Is it ethically okay to have a digital avatar of you read your kids a bedtime story given that they'll read the same darn story over and over and over again without ever worrying. There's a Mr. Happy t-shirt in the back row, so the kids want Mr. Happy again and again and again, and your digital avatar will happily do it. Well, I say, <laughs> let me say no. Now, look, this is a really difficult question, right? Because, well, first of all, obviously the problem might be, right, hypothetically, I'm not home for the children, so that's the problem, right? Now, I don't have to solve that problem anymore because I can employ my digital self to pretend daddy being home and that might work while they're two or three or four years old but maybe that will just raise a whole cynical generation of people who happily accept that real human contact is something that is incredibly rare and not for everyone and again it comes back to what are the cultural norms what is it that we come to accept as normal as these technologies become consumer technologies I think it's a really good point. It was really interesting that Aristotle, do you know Aristotle? It was Mattel's, the version of Alexa designed for children. Oh, not Greek philosophy. <laughs> no, no, it's not to give it. It was pulled from the market because they spent years developing this and it was designed to be like the digital assistant from when your child was born all the way through to when your child was 18 and it could grow with your child. And the reason why they pulled it was because they were surprised at how quickly parents were outsourcing parenting to the assistant so the assistant would get smarter and learn how the baby wanted to be soothed and I thought this was really interesting and I was very critical of Aristotle and Mattel and then I thought to myself it's really easy to take this ethical high ground and then my mind went back to a situation when my son was really young and I had forgotten that I was meant to be on the radio and the phone rang and I'm thinking oh my god like how do I go live on air with a screaming baby so I put Jack in his cot and I phone his nonna 
And I say, Wendy, can you go on Skype and can you read Jack a story and sing to him? Just keep him quiet for five minutes till I get through this radio interview. So I put the iPad in the cot. Jack's sitting there interacting with Nona. I think, right, I can get through this five minutes later. And then I hear this screaming because he's thrown the iPad on the floor. Now, in that situation, I can sit here and go, I would never hire a virtual assistant. I would have pressed go in that instance. So I think we make these decisions without thinking of the social pressure, without thinking of the context, which would encourage us to actually outsource those parenting yeah. moments in time. And I mean, the reason why we chose the title for this session is because it is important to talk about children because children, they happily take anything to be normal in this world. And we know this from children growing up in all kinds of ghastly circumstances and regimes around the world. So what we come to accept as normal is what is being done around us. So the earlier we have these technologies in people's lives, the more we're creating the society going forward and ingraining things as normal. What if I had a maths tutor on my iPad that was a digital face that would talk to the person and it would use the camera so it could see your expressiveness and it would speed up or slow down and just respond to you if you were a kid and it would say, oh, you don't seem to be following, do you want me to repeat that? And what if that digital face on the screen to the notional seven-year-old girl that I'm handing this to is not just a maths tutor but a digital person? What if the person on the screen is a digital version of herself maybe six months older to make it aspirational. So now this girl has a version of herself that is already being able to do the problems. You can see she can do the problems. It's facilitating her ability. As an educator, what do you think? Oh, I think it's a difficult question because I would have to ask what's behind it. Is there something akin to artificial intelligence behind it? Or is it a, simple, a 55-year-old teacher who is no, pretending no. to be the little girl? No, like a Siri type, you know, it's like I've developed a maths... It's got a narrow field of view. It's not going to be able to answer questions on religion, but it can answer questions on school-level maths. I think there's definitely potential, very similar to the conversation we had before. We often go to the, oh, no, keep it away from me, and I think that's the normal reaction for many of us who see the potential downsides of this technology. So there's definitely upsides. Just like in the conversation we've had here, we spoke about kids, but... What about elderly people who might be very, very lonely? And at this point, as a society, we haven't figured out how to put more people in their lives. And what if this is an option of having digital avatars? Same thing with children, but then what are you priming them for? Is this the only way they'll learn from a person who is their age, who has certain features? And also, many of these technologies actually are, as Kai said, quite dumb. So they might not be able to pick up if the child is in distress, if the child doesn't understand things, if they have reached the limits of what they can do and how to improve. So yeah, I'm not suggesting leaving them for a year with a computer, <laughs> but I mean for an afternoon, for an hour. I want to pick up on this, right? Because my observation is that the progress that we're currently making in the digital representations, or the faces, the digital faces is running far ahead of the creation of intelligence in machines, right? which we haven't mastered. We can simulate under very narrow circumstances something that might sound like a comprehensible conversation. But the moment we step outside of this, things become entirely random and nonsensical. So the danger that I see is that we're creating something that for all intents and purposes looks like 
and expresses facial emotions like a real human, but has no capacity to actually be emotional, empathetic, understand or pick up on what's going on in front of the screen beyond some very narrow sort of surface layer, or oh, you're smiling, you must be happy, you're frowning, you must be angry. And so what if those situations go horribly wrong? Someone confesses to the digital companion that they're about to commit suicide because they feel lonely. There's no capacity in the machine to pick up on this. And we've seen and this it with happens. theory, right? We've right. seen this with people scheduling, remind me to kill myself. And they said, okay, what time should I remind you? Yeah. <laughs> so my, my favorite one was, Siri, call me an ambulance. All right, I'll call you an ambulance. <laughs> Hello, ambulance. <laughs> but we can make fun of this, but this then raises so many questions. Who's responsible? How could anyone let this happen? And so we have to be clear that what we can do with faces and what we're about to do is very much ahead of what we can do in terms of what this thing can actually respond to. And can I also point to the fact that we as humans are really bad at understanding that these things are not real? A good example is a couple of years ago, there was an Instagram account created by Lil Michaela. And Lil Michaela was this hip woman who hung out in all the cool places and went to the good restaurants and wore the latest Prada shoes and gave advice about dating. And she wasn't real. She still has about a million followers who listen to her every word and, you know, buy the T-shirt that she buys because it's softer than the other ones. She doesn't wear T-shirts. But it was revealed a couple of months ago when we talked about this on the podcast, it was revealed she's not real. She's a digital still image, same as digital mic, but just a still image with a company behind it. It didn't make any difference to her followers. People still asked her how she was, people still asked her what she prefers, and followed her exactly the same way. So we are very bad at understanding what makes them what they are if we slap a human face on it. Mm. So virtual user becoming a really big thing in conferences, particularly when the speakers are becoming too busy and famous to show up. So I was at one with Tony Robbins. No, it's just me. checking. <laughs> um, <laughs> I actually wish I could send my virtual self sometimes. Not today, but it was a virtual Tony Robbins being controlled by the real Tony Robbins in L.A. And this woman sitting next to me, she's oh. Or was he? Maybe someone Maybe else? one that someone on his team, exactly. He's so handsome, which is weird in itself because Tony Robbins is not handsome by my sense. And I was like, he's not real. No, he's real. No, he's not real. She so wanted it to be the real Tony Robbins that she would look over so many different things. And I love that ABBA is going on tour because the real ABBA hate one another, but they can put virtual ABBA as ABBA when they liked one another on tour. And the they can also put dead people. Tupac Shakur appeared at the Coachella Festival. Right, my he Jackson. Dead. <laughs> so I think this is a really interesting question as to where does this desire come from we kind of know, but to want to believe these things are real. Okay, well, let me swing it then and pick up on an earlier point you made about elderly care. So, Rachel, it's completely feasible, and these are being studies that are already done, that the iPad I described earlier has an artificial face on it, and it's in an older person's yeah. home, because we statistically know they'll do better at home than in a nursing home. So it's in the home. They know it's not real, but they still, every morning, it says hi, and they ask a couple of questions like, how do you feel today, what's going on? If the person can't answer the avatar's questions, it sends alerts to either family, friends, mm -hmm. or relatives. It's not taking the place 
of that carer. It's just saying that we're going to check in with this person every morning and then it might say, don't forget today you take the red pills for your heart and the person just says yes. And in the studies that they did in Europe, they discovered the two faces that worked the best on the screen were A, their pet, like a dog asking <laughs> questions, and B, their grandchild. Mm. Now they knew it wasn't their grandchild, right? But it was so happily sort of psychologically pleasing to them to see a digital version of their granddaughter talking to them that they would use the system. And not only that, but of course they'd show all their friends. They were proactive in using it. So that seems to me like very doable technology, solves Kai's problem about the faces getting too far <laughs> in advance. Do we have any issues with that or do we fall into the same problem of the dehumanizing of the person because of the computer? So I think one of the biggest applications of this is in social isolation and loneliness, particularly in elderly care. I mean, there was a frightening study that was done in the UK recently that found that 25% of the population over the age of 70 didn't see anyone more than once a month, friends or family, which is just horrific, right? But the issue I have with it is who's deciding what the limits are. You can't decide how attached and dependent that person's going to be on that virtual version of their pet or an adult or whoever they choose it to be. And correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't know enough about the technology, but we're so far off from being able to embed empathy. And so if they get to a point where they become too trusting with the virtual pet or their virtual grandchild, and then it doesn't give them what they need back, does that fix the loneliness and the isolation or does it make them feel more alone? Because they say, I fell in love with this thing. Well, to extend the aged care metaphor, the other use that's happened in Australia is a pilot scheme set up for disabled people where a virtual assistant appears on the screen and reads and listens and does all the facial stuff for the loop of telling what you're doing, but just doesn't require you to use a keyboard and mouse to do a lot of stuff. And so in a society where we're getting increasingly computerized and requiring people to go through a computer, if you're elderly, if you're disabled, isn't it a good thing to suddenly have a face you can talk to? You don't think it's human, it's just it facilitates you doing stuff without being dexterous. So I'm mindful of the time that we want to go to the audience, so I want to say one more thing. As humans, we're hardwired to faces. It's the first thing that we can recognize as newborns. Right? So there's actually a region in the brain which can pick up faces and facial expressions that we don't have to learn. So while that is incredibly important and useful for us as social beings in creating the social fabric that makes society work, it also makes us vulnerable because this can be exploited. This is exploited in advertising anyway. We have big-eyed children on TV and it sort of speaks to us without actually having to speak to us. Now that we can create digital humans, we don't actually be having to convince humans to do something shady. We just create a digital version that can do anything that we want. This can be incredibly powerful in the right situation, incredibly dangerous, because we have a certain defenselessness to faces. Okay, so what we're going to do is do some questions now from you guys, and we'll come back. Yeah. There's a question for Rachel. You've said in the past that trust is a new currency. So do you think the advent of this sort of technology is going to increase or decrease the value of trust? I think it's going to accelerate how easily we give away our trust. I don't think it's going to undermine the role of trust in society and in a weird, strange way, and maybe this is the optimistic side of me, I think it's going to help us place more value on human trust. My hope, and this might be a naive comment, but through these virtual interactions, 
we actually realize the limits and we start to recognize and embrace what is fundamentally human and cannot be replaced by a machine. So in a weird way, and I think you're seeing this all, like the fake news stuff where people are starting to say, okay, I place more value on professional journalism and they're starting to say, what is the truth? That's the same kind of thing where people will start to say, am I giving my trust away too easily to virtual beings? And do I need to be responsible for that and more in control of that? So it's possible that these technologies actually might reinforce what it means to be human. So do you think at some point we could get an avatar to just pretty much do everything for us? Like you could tap something on your phone, I guess, and it would turn on your PlayStation. You could just go upstairs and go and play on that or it could put on the stove. So the examples you just gave then are not very far away from what I can do with Siri now. I just need to have those devices connected. So my attitude is we're going to give you the tech that you think is awesome and cool that'll do all the things you described, but I'm pretty sure Kai will point out that it'll just appear clever won't actually be clever. So the issue is that we don't really understand intelligence. We want to somehow recreate who we are, this intelligence, in machines. We're not doing any of this because we don't understand it. What we do is we do some clever tricks that appear intelligent or we simulate something that intelligent people do like playing chess or playing Go. These machines don't play Go. They have incredibly computing power and they can win the game but they don't play the game. Right? This is important. Why do we play games? We play games for the enjoyment. We play games because we want to play games. We want to challenge ourselves. Right? We want to be better than the other person. These machines have none of that because they don't understand what a game is. They're just programmed to win. So it's very flat. There's no humanness in there. So they don't actually technically play the game, nor do they want to play the game, nor can they go and play another game. So we can automate certain tasks in our lives. That's not new. We've done that a lot. And we will do this, and that can help in many parts of our lives. We can help doctors be better at finding cancer cells. But these things can't have a conversation with a patient come up with a treatment plan that actually fits that person. So, yes, we could automate a whole bunch of things in your house to free up time so that you can go and play on your PlayStation. But the question is, why would we want to do this? Cooking dinner. Many people cook because they want to cook. It's enjoyable. We enjoy something that is hard and difficult. We enjoy having a meal. So many of the things that we do, we do them because that's what makes us human. We can reduce everything to a chore and say, oh, if we could automate that. And then we can do that. But that doesn't mean that we're actually creating things that are like us. So I think that's important to keep in mind. So automation will do interesting things for us, but we're not creating anything that is likely to replace us anytime soon. Many people find that is bad news, but I think it's good news. So I read Yuval Harari's book a couple of years ago, Sapiens, and now I'm listening to it. And it's really interesting when you read a book and then you listen, you hear the book very differently. And the point I miss, which is a fundamental thread throughout the book, is that the expectation of automation throughout society, how the expectation stayed the same, right? We'll free up time by automating or outsourcing or accelerating a task, and that time will be filled with something better. Mm. And we 
Oh, sorry, let's go back to I did not say that word. No, but it's really important because this feels like a human flaw, a deep human flaw, that this isn't a new phenomenon. This has happened throughout civilization that we discover a technology, it can accelerate, automate, and we think we're on the path to something better. Why do we believe that? Yeah. It's almost a religious belief in the power of technology. I want to come back to your example. We can build something that is far better at playing PlayStation than you. But why would you automate that? You could just have a robot do the PlayStation playing for you. You've got time to cook. This lady, I begin, yeah. How far would you allow laws to come in into the creation of the use of avatars? Would that stymie the creation or the use or the ability to use them better? I think fairly soon some of these technologies will be consumer technologies. And knowing that there's kids in the room, I will point to the fact that right now we have a problem with deep fakes. These are videos of adults where we use technology to put some famous person's face on an adult actress's body or a male. That technology is under no one's control, and it's consumer-level technology. I can go on the Internet and make these things with the faces of someone famous. So the fact that we will be able to enforce this, I don't think we... We're quite there yet, and there's a lot of work. But this sort of things help. There's two things that come to mind. Who sets those laws? With all due respect, like the Australian government, regulators? <laughs> I don't think the solution lies there. So where do the laws come from, I think, is a really interesting question. And is there a new role for philosophers in society? We need new frameworks that are more than legal frameworks. They're social contracts. So where that thinking comes from... I think it's a hybrid. I don't think it's just from hmm. academics and education. So that's a big question in society. It's a massive void and a massive problem. And then to your point, Sandra, I think it's the implementation of these things, the effectiveness of these things. So the other day I was on a panel with someone from Facebook and they asked him a question about stealing data. And he said, look, the problem is, you know, someone went into your house and stole the toaster. You'd understand that because it's a physical thing and it got removed. But there is no law around what data stealing even looks like. And I think this is that problem, but tenfold, you know. So where does the law come from? And then how effective is it in implementation are huge societal challenges that we have coming up. Just on that question, while that might sound like a good idea, I want to point out what it would take to enforce this. Mm. So basically, someone would have to be able to watch what I do in my home and on my computer. So it would require us trusting the government to monitor everything that we do in our computers. Otherwise, we can't enforce <laughs> the fact that I might puppeteer a different avatar when I'm on the Internet. So I think sometimes these things are not only impractical, they're a no-no because the person trying to enforce the law, we might trust them even less. You know, we might not want to put in place the kind of systems that are necessary to enforce some of those laws. So I think it's really difficult. Somebody's been waiting here. We talked about at the moment that there's very narrow capability as far as the... We don't have AI yet, but with the learning algorithms and as we continue to develop them, it's coming together and faking a real human is becoming easier and easier, as we've seen with Google and some other things that are happening. Thinking forward even a decade, do you see that as complicating or simplifying the ethical discussion? And as you pull that together for Mummy, Do I Marry My Avatar, how does that play in your mind, that ethical dilemma? 
Can I just say right away that the one thing that the film The Terminator got right is that your avatar in the future will be incredibly patient, will always be there, will never let you down, will always listen to you, will always have time, and will never be bored by what you're saying. If you think that isn't going to cause people to fall in love with their avatar, you don't know people. But that's just my point of view. <laughs> they also won't understand Zilch because these entities, for want of a better word, they don't live in our world. They don't grow up into our world. They don't get to experience our world. They don't have bodies. They don't have emotions. It is pretty clear neurologically that emotions are actually underpinning cognition. It's not like we start with thought and then we somehow get emotion on top of that. There's no reason to believe that computers are anything like minds, right? There's any number of reasons why we will not be able to simulate human cognition, human minds, human emotion in machines in a genuine way that makes machines sentient. So I think that's fiction. The interesting question is, why are we so ready to believe this and why do we believe we can build this? I think there's enough evidence that we can't. And I think we will see soon, in the next two to three, four years, this whole AI thing will experience a real reality check, that a lot of these things will be problematic. But the point is that we can simulate a believable human entity and deceive people. That's the issue. Yeah, we can definitely produce something that looks like it's clever, even though it's not clever. So I was sitting on a plane recently next to someone who runs Google Labs, and just at a very macro level, we were talking about ethical issues of our time, and she pointed something out to me that now seems so obvious. She said, for previous generations, the debate around sexuality and our right to be heterosexual, homosexual, right, that was the previous generation. The debate today seems to be gender like our right to be whatever gender that we want. And her prediction is that the next big ethical debate where somehow government and law will try and get involved where it really doesn't have a place is on virtual beings and marriage and cyber sex and relationships. And when you put it like that, I don't know if you disagree, but it's like, will this debate in 30 years' time be the debate my parents were having around the right to marry someone of the same sex? There's a qualitative difference that I want to point out, which is the discussions around sexuality, gender, they're all discussions about us, where what we discuss is us, and we get to experience and we can empathize because we all get to have sexuality and gender and whatever. The moment we're bringing machine entities in, these entities cannot participate in that discussion because they don't have these experiences. So it becomes a different kind of discussion it becomes weird, and we can pretend that they do, which makes it even weirder. So I don't have an answer of what that will be like, but I point out that this is a different discussion, but it reflects on us the way in which we treat these entities. Okay, that one there. Hi, I'm an English teacher, I'm a high school teacher, and I know when you take phones away from students, they completely go crazy, they lose their shit. And I was wondering, the question is about with the dependence <laughs> on technology and the avatars, what implications it's going to have on their resilience to survive when these technologies when we take them away or when they run dead or the battery runs flat? I think we quite often think that people are resilient because of something in them and if we hurt that thing in them then they will become less resilient. And I would put it to you that resilience actually resides within your broader network. And to that, if you think of, for instance, like the most resilient people in the world, people like refugees who risk everything and risk their lives over high water and you know, high fences, they're quite resilient to be doing that. If you take away their network, their family, their children, their friends and lock them up, 
they become less resilient suddenly. But they're the same person, but now they stop eating, they want to commit suicide, and so on. So the fact that students' resilience would just rest in that one thing, I think, is underestimating the power that the school, the parents, their entire network around them has. So I'm about to move back to the UK, and there's a massive movement in the UK. My kids are about to join a new school where phones are completely banned. You cannot bring a phone into school. And it's pretty new. Some of the schools about six months to a year. And one of the reasons why they've done it is resilience. And they're actually saying it's an addiction. They can see the detox. They can see some of the kids not being able to cope to get through the day. That is so worrying to me that they have to now ban it to actually teach the kids that they are resilient enough to go throughout the day without that phone, without that network, that they can be with their peer group and okay and be okay at school. That's my point, because it's within that peer group. For many teenagers who are so accustomed to actually do a lot of their social contact through the device, when you take that device away, you are basically taking the support (coughs) network away. So you actually have to find ways to cope with that and to make up for that. But I think for a school, that's an opportunity. That's a chance to actually recover some other practices and create new practices that can build resilience that are not dependent on the devices. And I think that's important, not because, you know, we want to patronize people or educate and say, oh, you mustn't use your device, but because we have recently learned in the last couple of years that the platforms that we spend time on, that we use to connect with our peer group, they're not built with our best interests in mind. And that's the reason why we actually have to be more watchful and a bit more skeptical of these technologies. Having the social network and communities, Facebook, to name one, can do great things for communities. It has become sort of an afterthought to the business model, and that's the danger. Just to pick up on that, though, because obviously I'm the pro-tech guy on the panel. There are five big U.S. companies, the biggest by market capitalization, and in no order, they're like Apple, Google, Amazon, Facebook, and Microsoft, yeah? They've eclipsed the oil companies, they've eclipsed the conglomerates. They're in a race to be the first trillion dollar company. Every one of those is spending billions with a B on this technology. So this isn't like some guys in a lab like we are. If you right now go to Sydney University, come out with an honours or PhD in machine learning, and you come up with some new algorithm in this area, they buy the entire company to get you. Astronomical. They're talking them footballer salaries on people that are good at this. Now, it may be a bubble that may burst, but there's no doubt there's a huge amount of money and research going into this. So this is not without significance in that what you described. They must be doing that for some reason. Yeah. And secondly, it's going to accelerate the process. And that's all being controlled by, effectively, the desire to hit social media. Of course they're investing in this, but it's very different from an oil company or even a tobacco company because the raw material that they're exploiting is our time and attention. I'm not that's, making an ethical judgment. I'm just saying that there is a lot of research in this area. Yeah, that's what worries me. And this is why I actually think you need pretty drastic actions like banning phones and devices from schools because you have to teach children that they are okay and they do have the resilience, whether it be within their physical yeah. environment or that. We have to be teaching those skills 
alongside the introduction of these technologies, which is absolutely inevitable. I'd add one more skill to that, which is understanding what the technology can and cannot do and what's behind it. I think that's a sorely missing skill, not only in our politicians, but in people in general. Having a sitting U.S. senator say, well, if you don't charge people, how do you make your money? And someone from Facebook having to go, well, it's ads, senator, we use ads. Not understanding how these technologies work, I think, is the first barrier, because then we think they're smart, we think they're intelligent, we think they can be our companion and do all these things. So actually infusing that, whether it's school, whether it's public conversations like this where you look behind the curtain and you see that deception, but next time you look at the system, you'll go, yeah, actually it's not that cool. It does some things, but not other things. I think that's critically important for the public conversation around this. I think once you understand that the user, the interface, the way in which Facebook is built, they are employing deliberately techniques that we have learned from building pokey machines. So the way in which the interface is built is essentially to grab your attention and to keep you engaged. Because the more engaged, the less we put away our devices, the more money the company makes. So I think that's one aspect that is important to understand. And the other one is the education aspect. I teach business information systems or digital technology to undergraduate, postgraduate students. And we're often confronted at open day, for example, when we talk to parents with observations like, oh, but the kids are all digital natives. They know all of this technology. And that makes a fundamental mistake because just the fact that I'm using something every day doesn't mean that I have to know a whole lot about it. How many in the room drive a car? How many of you can change a light bulb on that car? <laughs> you must be driving a relatively old car because, you know, on the latest ones you have to actually dismantle the whole thing to get to a light bulb. There's no light bulbs anymore, it's all LED anyway. But the point being that I don't actually have to know much about a combustion engine or an electric engine to drive a car, nor do I have to understand how Facebook works in order to use it. Quite the opposite. The more that I lose myself in the technology, the less I actually think about how it works. And that presents a real danger. The number of students that we see coming out of school that do not understand how Google works and where these things that Google chucks up are coming from is a little concerning. I'm not saying that you have to know anything about how the algorithm works, but just to know how Google prioritizes the stuff that you see on the first page, because, hey, who goes to the second page anyway, right? Very few people. I want to make a final statement about the title of this <laughs> panel, Mommy, Can I Marry My Avatar? That's a yes or no question, right? But the point is that we don't have an answer to that. What we actually have to think about is who gets to make that decision? How do we collectively find a way to engage in a process to make those decisions, to have those conversations? That's what needs to happen. I was going to say something very similar, and I actually, on the way here, I was playing out the conversation with my daughter, and would I let her marry an avatar? And especially if she said, it's better than the real thing. It just understands me better, and it's always there. And one of the things I was thinking about was when I wanted to get married in my early 20s and would have made really the wrong choice. And my parents, in quite a diplomatic way, tried to teach me long-term consequences, like that they could see ahead in ways that I couldn't see. And that's what I was thinking about, is how could I help her understand the consequences of marrying someone virtual versus marrying someone physical? I think this conversation is coming. I think it's one that I might have to have. So. <laughs>
I was thinking about what avatar, I would love to have the avatar of my grandmother, and I was thinking of what she said at my wedding, which was, excellent choice for a first husband. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, we are out of time. I do love that. I do want to thank you guys for coming. We actually think it's really terrific to be having these conversations ahead of time. I apologise for the earlier deception, though, as you see, that was the point of the exercise. I am obviously very engaged in this conversation, and I love it, but I just want to finish with the words of another professor that I am good friends with who said, hey, this stuff's coming. We should at least make sure they like us. So thank you so much for being here, and uh, I appreciate it. Thank you. This was The Future This Week. Made possible by the Sydney Business Insights team and members of the Digital Disruption Research Group. And every week right here with us, our sound editor, Megan Wedge, who makes us sound good. And keeps us honest. Our theme music was composed and played live on a set of garden hoses by Lindsay Pollack. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us online on Flipboard, Twitter, or sbi.sydney.edu.au. If you have any news that you want us to discuss, please send them to sbi at sydney.edu.au. Thank you.